Please stand and hear from God's Word, His call. It's a gracious invitation. It's also a command. So by grace, we are heeding His commands to gather for worship. Reading from Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So those beloved of God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May we worship him in faith today. And let me pray. Lord, we thank you indeed for this privilege uh, to be worshiping you today, but for your grace in electing us and in calling us and in adopting us, regenerating us and giving us saving faith, we would be doing other vain things today. So we thank you for working in our hearts, making us willing and eager and able to come here today to offer you that which you desire Worship in spirit and in truth. May we admit that there is no good in us other than your spirit dwelling, that we are new creatures in Christ, and from this new heart we desire to offer you praise and thanksgiving, and Lord, that you would fill us uh, even today and days to come to be uh, vessels of mercy in the ministry of reconciliation in our families, in our job places, in this city, this state, and in this whole world, Lord. May you be doing your good work in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Old Testament reading from Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. The uh, key thing that drew my attention to that text as it relates to our sermon is the issue of servanthood. Here we have Abraham commending this vitally important task. We can see the lineage of the patriarchs hinging, so to speak, on the success of this mission that Abraham entrusted to his servant. And making that oath was a very solemn commitment to carry forth that charge, the servant to the master. So with that in mind, let us come then to Romans Chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7, although we will, as you can see in your uh, sermon note sheet there, be focusing on one word, bondservant or servant, from verse 1. But hearing in God's holy and inspired word, Romans, Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, 
who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for the ministry of God's word here. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open up your precious word for your people. May you guide my mouth here today that I would not venture into the supposed wisdom of man, but would stay close to your wisdom as you have maintained it for your people throughout many generations. That we would look into the traditions of your scripture conveyed through the apostles and prophets and be protected from the mere traditions of man. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll make sure again, those who desire one have the note sheet. And then also, is my volume okay? It's sounding good to me. It's good? Okay. And I appreciate some feedback that was offered last time about my need to maintain volume. <laughs> so I really, really appreciate that. It's very sweet to have people care enough to say, Pastor Elliot, be sure you do this. So I'm very open to that. Really thankful. Humbling, but thankful. But uh, welcome back to this uh, series in Romans, uh, back to what one commentator called the cathedral of the Christian faith, and another, this is Luther, who said this is the chief book of the New Testament containing the purest gospel, and by purest meaning maybe clearest, um, a broadest summary, not that the other books of the Bible, of course, or the New Testament lack a clear statement of the gospel, but here, as Martin Luther said, the purest expression of the gospel. Last time, uh, we focused on one word, the first word of this first sentence in the first chapter of Romans. Uh, the emphasis I want to make from that sermon was that he was a real, live person with a history. God used that history, which was really quite um, austere in some senses. It was godly, outwardly, but yet it was profane. Uh, profane in that it was empty. He thought he was serving God, but he wasn't. He thought he was honoring the Lord. Instead, he was persecuting the Lord and ultimately putting to death and imprisoning his people. So God used that history for God's glory. Right? He turned that around for his own glory and ultimately for Paul's good as he brought Paul to repentance and faith. Some liberals will say that Paul never existed or that he didn't write these letters even if he did uh, was a real man. To those assaults against the clear testimony of Scripture and a whole bunch of different variations that I won't even allude to, to those assaults from generations past and from a thousand years ago, truly there's nothing new under the sun. But against all those accusations against God's word, we say no. Paul was a real person. He really did live that life as a young man, earnestly thinking he was serving God, but ultimately fighting against him. And he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write Romans as he was a new creation in Christ, having been saved from his sin and transformed by God's great grace. And ultimately, what those liberal accusations uh, end up with, whether it's uh, questioning the veracity of Paul as a real historical person or questioning the authenticity of his authorship, is they remove hope, right? They just make this the ideas of man. And whether it's the ideas of man displayed yesterday at the CHI Arena in Omaha or other expressions of man's ideals here in Lincoln or wherever, uh, if it's only the ideas of man, 
Sure, question it, right? Talking with folks on the sidewalk yesterday, they're saying, why should I believe you? Uh, and I'm saying, don't believe me, believe God. So ultimately, we fight back against the liberals and other underminings of scripture because they have a fatal point. They're wanting it to be the mere ideas of man. But we say, no, this is God. God working through Paul. God working through other authors. And ultimately, not that we're prophets, but God working in our lives. That's the supernatural that is ultimately essential. So, let us not forget that Paul's story is a witness to that intersection of the divine, the supernatural, with that which is in history, right? The Christian life is me as a real person and God's supernatural Holy Spirit working in me. God's working in history is through the church, a body which is actual physical real people, but yet it's a supernatural entity. So the Christian religion is not what it needs to be if it's lacking that intersection between real human people and the divine, God's spirit working in us. A second big point out of, by way of introduction I want to make and uh, later, if we even have opportunity in months ahead, uh, we'll get to the audience that Paul was speaking to. So Paul, a real man, the apostle, as we'll see, speaking to real people. Uh, in a nutshell, it's referenced in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called to be saints. What I want to draw attention to now is that wording, saints, holy ones, made holy not by their good works or acts of generosity, or whatever social graces they might manifest, or think they had done with enough merit, but made holy by God's work. He brought them out of darkness into light. And so friends, if you've been similarly transformed by God's great grace, then this is a letter to you as well, right? Paul, the real man, the apostle, uh, being moved by the Holy Spirit to write the scripture, writes this to the saints who are in Rome but with lessons for us, the saints living in Nebraska, hundreds of years later. And it's written to us to provide instruction, to provide comfort, joy, peace, maybe some conviction, some challenge, some correction, but it is written to us. But coming now to the next uh, part of that clause, focusing on one word, or really two words in the English, a bond servant, or depending on the translation, a servant. And I want to look at, as you can see highlighted there in your notes, three key points. What is the meaning of the specific word, servant? What is the significance of Paul being a servant? And then what are the implications for us? Again, this letter is written to us. We need to be servants too. So what are the implications for us as servants? And uh, one thing I love about the book of Romans is that it is uh, what I'll call profoundly countercultural. Over and over again, Paul uh, contrasts gospel principles, gospel essentials, with the alternatives, uh, with the pagan principles. He contrasts gospel living with heathen living. In this way, it is hugely significant for us today, just as it was when it was first written. Uh, back then, it struck hard against a culture that needed to be Christianized, right? And ultimately, it very much was. Not 100%. I'm not one to say that under Constantine, every uh, citizen of the Roman Empire was a true Christian. I'm not going to assert that. But there was a huge, incredible impact of the gospel in those early centuries. Truly, the seed was planted and grew rapidly. A huge impact into the whole region there. And today... God's word confronts a culture that needs to be re 
Christianized. If ever we had a Christian culture in the United States, it has slipped drastically, and we all know that. And the only way for a culture to be transformed is for individuals to be transformed, for individuals to be living out their Christian life in their various callings. And so, while it's certainly true uh, when Paul wrote this, it is also true now, whether it's in civics, so as we're gearing up for a big presidential uh, race in the next year, uh, governor's races, or mayor of Lincoln in our own churches, as you're seeking a uh, pastor here in our families, for young people preparing to lead families. In all of these places, let us not be fooled by false concepts of service and of leadership. So, coming to this topic of serving. It touches on leadership. It touches on submission. How are we to respect others and submit to them? How are leaders to lead? Every area of our lives uh, is impacted by this. So, friends, let us be on Paul's team, as it were, and be about casting down idols uh, and every word that uh, assaults itself against God. Those idols, whether they be proverbially out there or they be in here, in our own hearts, those idols must be cast down. And it can be especially personal and maybe difficult when it's close to home. And more painful to tear those down, but more important, right? All the more important. I certainly was thinking yesterday as I was out there on the street, and I admit it's probably going to come to my mind a number of times today as we progress, but people rightly saying, who are you to judge? I would say it's not me to judge, but I would be a hypocrite if I was standing here accusing you of something that I'm participating in. So let us, before the Lord, before the throne of grace, be ones who come with clean hands, right? We have what they don't have because we have saving grace and sanctifying power. So if we're wondering, why aren't other people serving right? Let's first look at ourselves. Am I serving right? Is my service conformed to what God would have me do? That humility is key. Having humbled ourselves, let's get engaged in that casting down, first of the idols in our own hearts, and then around us. So I do pray that today's text, uh, made powerful by the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts, will be effective in bringing our thoughts captive to the Word of God. So as we come to uh, this part of the first sentence in Romans chapter 1, technically if I was preaching uh, word by word here, uh, in the English the next word would be a, right? In the Greek text, a isn't there, the next word is bondservant or servant. And so, you might rightly ask, why is this word inserted? Uh, partly it's just for, I'll call it, uh, reading smoothness. Literally, in the English, it would say, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ. That actually works. I don't think it's that hard. If I was a translator, I probably would have done that. Um, but I'm not. And uh, the reason why the experts do that is because generally, we do have in the English an article. Either the A or the the, the indefinite or the definite article. Uh, the Greek form there of having the word without the article is what's called anarthrus. And the purpose or uh, meaning, significance, <clears throat> as it's understood uh, in the Koine Greek used in the New Testament, is that it emphasizes the character of the person. So it's kind of the attribute, not the function, not the actual acts, but the character quality of the person doing these things. And certainly in the English, it confirms that. Uh, that it's not so much he, the man, the servant, right? It's not his role there, but it's the quality. It's the character of what he's doing. So Paul, in his use of language, again, guided by the Holy Spirit, this is not some accident. This is not merely his scholarly training that led to this words, but God has a purpose in every single 
word, as we're familiar hearing it, every jot and tittle. Right? So Paul, in his use of language, sets an example for us. He makes an important lesson. He does not call attention to himself. He doesn't set himself up as the servant, the preeminent one, or something like that. Paul did not claim preeminence. In fact, elsewhere, uh, it's in Ephesians, I believe Ephesians 3, he expressly put himself lower. Uh, he brought himself down from eminence. In so many epistles, he had the opportunity to assert himself, to make himself uh, higher in rank, but he didn't. He didn't feel the need to, uh, didn't want to. Occasionally he did. You could say, oh, he's playing the apostle card there. Well, it was for good purpose, and it's perfectly fine for him to do so. He had that authority. But broadly speaking, he's certainly not trying to puff himself up to make himself more eminent. And as that Greek form teaches us, the character of servanthood is the key thing. Not the position, not the rank, or the specific task of service, but the character of a servant. And that's going to be the heart of what we get to, really, in the third section. Well, coming to the following words, and I'm trying to set the context here, having explained briefly about Paul, and then now about of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul serving? It's a broad, important idea, as I put it there in your outline, Romans 14.23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So any supposed acts of service, right? Any actual, oh, I look at that and that looks like you're serving. Any act like that that's not done in faith, not done as unto the Lord, it might be nice. It's certainly better than not doing it, but it is not service as to Jesus Christ. It's ultimately not pleasing to him. Uh, think of the scripture statement that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Should the unsaved person plow, Should they plant their field and seek a harvest to feed their family or to grow commerce in their region as a farmer? Yes. To not plant their field is worse, right? They're not providing for their family. They're not making use of the resources that God has given them. So the plowing of the wicked is sin. The laziness of the wicked man is worse than the plowing, but the mere plowing does not please God. So similarly, on the face of it, acts of service in and of themselves do not please God. Only when done in faith. That's Romans 14. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That man, unbeliever, plowing his field is sinning. Uh, The person who was in Omaha yesterday uh, picking up trash uh, with a pride t-shirt on, so supporting the cause, was not doing that trash pickup in faith. He was sinning. So suffice it to say for now that Paul is not referring to, by the use of the word servant, And I do not advocate some general idea of service. Uh, This is not a checklist, right? A ten-point list of things to do so you can feel better about yourself or impress your neighbors or achieve some social status in whatever organization you're working in. Instead, now we come to the overarching point that true service is the evidence of and only comes from a changed heart. It is the outworking of a life captivated by the Lord Jesus and consecrated to him. So just keep those three parts in your mind. A changed heart, captivated by Jesus, consecrated to him. That is who we and what we need to be. So with that, our first section. Am I through the introduction yet? (laughs) The meaning of the specific word servant. So I want to develop, just real briefly, a definition. But of course, uh, every word in the New Testament is more than its dictionary definition. We have to look at how it's 
used and how it's employed, so we'll get to that briefly as well. But first, the dictionary definition, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That Greek word there is doulos, from which we get the modern term. If anybody here is into home birth and natural birth and such, you've heard about birth assistance, doulas. So it's exactly what this is taken from, a a woman in that context who serves uh, the woman during her labor and delivery. Uh, The dictionary definition being to bind or to ensnare and capture uh, also to slavery, whether it be involuntary or voluntary, uh, the person in a place of subjection or subserviency. But the plain dictionary definition takes on significance and nuance when we see how it is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we'll see here in a moment other instances of doulos in the New Testament and looking at the Old Testament, how is it that the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, what's the Hebrew word used in those places where the Septuagint uses doulos? So that corresponding word in the Old Testament, ebed, uh, carried the meaning of work, uh, as in working to serve another, right? Work not for your own gain, but work to benefit somebody else. Uh, it's used of Abraham, Moses, David, uh, various major and minor prophets, and importantly, often in the phrase, servant of the Lord. So again, just like Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, those men in the uh, past were described as servants of the Lord. Also, when the Lord called people, calling out to them, my servant. That was a way that God addressed his special people. So such a servant is very closely identified with his master. And that's why I read that passage from Genesis 24, right? The huge task that Abraham, as a master, was committing to his servant. Vital to the future of the faith. Obviously, God would have worked it out if there was, quote, failure. Uh, He foresaw that and used all those details according to his plan. But as we read that historical narrative, we're like, wow, that's a big project to entrust with that servant. So the identification of the master with his servant. He commended all that authority, all that responsibility, all that work to his servant. There in Genesis 24. A monumentous task with great resources, great trust put into him. Another instance would be uh, with the issue of slavery, whether temporary or long-term. And let me read you those verses from Exodus 21. Certainly, uh, slavery is a bit of a buzzword topic today, but we understand that controversial slavery and theft of people certainly a sin. Uh, but there's other forms of slavery that the Bible speaks of, which were godly, a way to provide for people when they didn't have the resources to do so themselves. So reading uh, Exodus 21. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, again, it's a slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. His master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, and the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So the point there, a Hebrew, taking another Hebrew for a slave, needs to provide that opportunity to go free. 
But the man may say, I don't want to. Uh, one case that he may not want to is if he has taken a wife during that time and born children during that time, then that wife and those children are the property of the master. If he wants to stay with them, he stays in service. And the way to confirm that voluntary choice uh, to stay in service is with the all, uh, through the ear, that mark. Not to get sidetracked, but that is uh, one basis uh, that some authors see for Paul's statement about bearing in his flesh the marks of the Lord Jesus. Many commentators see, oh, the mark that Paul is talking about is kind of a spiritualized or metaphorical connection to the mark here in Exodus 21. So, Paul didn't actually have a physical mark, but he's saying, in my heart, I bear the marks of Christ Jesus. I am a willing servant, uh, committed to his service forever. So that's a little vignette into the Old Testament usage of the corresponding word for servant. Now we come to some New Testament examples, and there's many. I'm just going to cite a few. One is in Romans 6, uh, 17 to 20. Feel free to turn there, or I'll just read it. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So the point here is that everyone's a servant, right? We're serving something. We're serving unrighteousness or righteousness. We're serving the flesh, carnally, or we're serving the spirit. Uh, talking with unbelievers, I often draw attention to the fact, and it's Jesus who says these words, right? Don't all these pagans believe, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. Well, yes, he was a good teacher, and this is one of the things he taught, is if you were a son of Abraham, you would believe me. If you don't believe me, it's because you're not his son. You're the son of the evil one. So this slavery of one thing or another is another one of those dividing points. It's an either-or. But we're all slaves. We're all sons of somebody, Abraham or the devil. We're all sons, or sorry, slaves to something, either righteousness or unrighteousness. Another example of this word, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul said, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So here Paul is saying, I'm a servant to you. Uh, he's a bondservant for Jesus' sake. But he is your, that is his audience, the people in Corinth. He's a bondservant to them. So Paul wanted to be clear that he was not self-serving. He was not elevating himself. He was serving the Lord. He was serving them. And he wanted them to not think he was lording it over them and really to set a model for how they could be servants as well. I'll skip over that example in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, but from uh, Philippians 2 with Matthew 20, 28. We read there that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I think that's uh, largely self-evident. I won't dig into it, but obviously it's a vast statement that Jesus about uh, the incarnation there. But just that point, he took on the form of a bondservant. And then from Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus' whole mission, his incarnation, his uh, passive and active righteousness uh, that are vital to the atonement, the substitutionary atonement, all of that is focused on service. Obviously, we're not going to serve like he did. We can't. We won't. 
but he was a servant, and so need to be we. Well, coming then to our second section, uh, that was the definition of service. We see how it's used briefly, Old and New Testaments, but now how, uh, and what were some characters, characteristics to how Paul was a servant. First, it reveals to us that Jesus is the divine Lord. And I've kind of hinted at this already, but in our clause it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I noted that many instances in the Old Testament have that corresponding word paired with the Lord, servant of the Lord. Here in our text we have servant of Jesus Christ. It is good and proper, and it's not just a little substitutionary trick, but to understand that to be a vital clue, a little hint, not so subtle, that Paul is dropping about the divinity, the messianic divinity of Jesus Christ. And I believe it was back in May I preached on that part of the who is the Jesus Christ that Paul is a bondservant of. And we dug into more detail there. And, but uh, bringing that uh, to our present situation, Paul is not just servant whoever. It doesn't matter who you serve. It is vitally important who you serve. And Paul is very quick to show that he is serving Jesus Christ, and it's proper for us to understand that in that structure of that phrase, he is equating Jesus Christ with Jehovah. But other clues, too. Uh, and we understand the importance of the singularity of who we serve. In some of the verses I referred to in your outline there, Exodus 20, verse 3, right? The commandment, have no other gods before me. Is it okay to say, oh, I've got a little another servant in this area of my life? No. God says, no one else above me. And then the great commandments in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Which might pop into your mind. Logical question. Well, what about my boss, right? My boss, I'm supposed to serve him, right? He says, show up at 9 o'clock. I show up at 9 o'clock. Should I say, oh, I got here at 9.15 because I was doing my Bible study? And I'm serving God by doing that Bible study, so that's why I was late? No. You serve the Master, yes, locally, your boss, as unto the Lord. Right? And there's many uh, direct statements in Scripture about that. So we have to understand that we can only have uh, wives serving their husbands, husbands serving their families, uh, employees serving their uh, bosses. That only happens insofar as we are doing it as unto the Lord. So ultimately, Jesus is the one we serve. And that comes to the next point about Jesus as the master. Paul is here confessing. Here we got to remember, what is the substance of the word doulos? It means servant. It means very low. It means do whatever you need. Nothing is too small, too dirty, too insignificant for me to take care of. So Paul is confessing his subjugation to, to uh, Jesus as his master. And if we... Uh, refresh our minds back to my June sermon about Paul and his conversion, recall that he was actively fighting against Jesus and his people. In that great encounter on the road to Damascus, Jesus asked Paul, why are you persecuting against me? And Paul might have thought, what do you mean? What, what was I doing? Yeah, how does that fit together? But uh, the answer was clear. Lord, who are you? Teach me who you are. And then very quickly, he's calling him master and doing whatever he needed to do. So we see in that encounter, who won the battle? Was this an equal pairing of forces between Jesus and Paul? No. Right? Effectual calling is what we see there. The effective work of the Holy Spirit to humble a man, to exalt God, and to change a life drastically. 
And that's part of that power dynamic of the master and the slave, the master and the servant. The servant does whatever the master wants. He makes us willing. He gives us a new heart that is inclined to him, that cries out to him, and thus being converted delights to do his will. And that's what we see from Acts 9 and following. Paul delighted to do God's will. He joyfully was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to highlight some other positive uh, words on that, for Paul, uh, this was not a bitter, compulsory, or uh, tedious service. It was joyful. He voluntarily committed himself to the service, like in the Exodus passage I wrote. Or, and this is the uh, quote about the uh, bearing in his body, the marks. He was glad. He he said, see this, right? I I bear a a mark so that you all can see that I'm a servant of God. And one last point to make about Paul's example here, and uh, in your outlines I put all those one-one references. So those are the first lines to a number of his epistles. In several of them, he says, servants of Jesus Christ, before, right after that, he mentions his apostleship. And here in Romans it says, called to be an apostle. <coughs> so here and in several others, he has servanthood before apostleship. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's flip-flops. So it would be wrong to say always service comes before office. Um, but the, law, the valid point to draw is that servanthood comes with office. Right? Any position of leadership has service as a part of it. If we're doing Christian leadership right, service is essential. So because there's variation, we don't want to be dogmatic one way or the other and say you know, one must be listed uh, before the other. But it is telling that in this grand letter, that cathedral of the Christian faith, the uh, purest expression of the gospel, etc. It is significant that in this letter, written to a church he hadn't yet visited, uh, to one he wasn't trusting, that most complete statement of the gospel, that he led with this statement, servant of Jesus Christ. If I had an office and had people coming to visit there for your pastoral visits and stuff, I'd wanted to say on the door, servant, right? That's the first thing uh, that uh, I want to have evident in my life. Well, now we come to the third uh, key section here. Understanding a bit about the word, how it's used throughout scripture, seeing uh, some evidence of how it played out in Jesus' or sorry, Paul's life. What are the implications for us? I don't want this to be a bare intellectual exercise, either a a wordsmithing or a biographical study about someone else. But for us to be humble, coming back to that initial point I made about humility, for us to be humble and ask ourselves, what difference does this make in my life? So I want to explore that uh, with a series of questions. And I admit they pricked my conscience as I prepared this message for you. So first question. Uh, Who is your Lord? And does Jesus say to you, friend, my servant? It's a fundamental question. Uh, We're all slaves, as I said. We're slaves of something. So who and what are you a slave to? Uh, Recall in John 8, uh, Jesus claimed divine sonship and stated that by following his words, they would be in the truth and free. Uh, skeptics speaking to him defended their freedom without wanting to submit to Jesus. They said, we're free. What are you talking about being slaves? Jesus said, no, you aren't free. 
Right? You're not free unless you're with me. Uh, truth sets you free. Righteousness sets you free. But if you're not with me, you're still a slave. He said, and this is John 8, whoever sins is a slave of sin. If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So just a humbling reminder there to recognize first things first. To use the words of Romans 1, who is your Lord? Words of John 8, who is your father? Or Matthew 6, who is your master? So we must not skip over this vital point. Are we in Christ? Do we truly have Jesus as our Lord, as our master? Next question. Inextricably linked to that is the question of lordship. Do you serve the Lord with an awareness of who he truly is. And in that sermon in May, we made clear the point that Jesus isn't the real Jesus unless he's the divine Messiah. Plenty of groups out there say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe the true Jesus because they're not understanding and living by who he is. So, for you, friends, do you serve the Lord with an awareness that he is truly divine? Now, I'll ask that in two senses. One would be, say, doctrinally. I mean, I, I trust because this denomination, this congregation is faithful to orthodoxy that you have been taught and you do have an intellectual grasp of the divine messiahship of Jesus Christ. But in terms of how it works its way out in our service, do we serve the Lord as the divine messiah? Right? Whether you're witnessing to a co-worker or whether you're instructing your uh, child in gospel ideas or as husbands are serving uh, their wives, <coughs> whether we're Surfing the internet, uh, driving down the interstate, are you going 65 or 85? Right? All of these things are opportunities. Do we really serve the Lord as the divine Messiah? Which is to say, we know he's watching. We know he's caring. We know he will correct us. Right? If we believe in Jesus as just some wise teacher, we would say, okay, he's got some important things to teach us, but he's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. So, let us live humbly before God and the Lord Jesus as the divine Messiah. Next question. Is your service half-hearted or short-termed? And I'm referring to our tendency, and I'll lump myself in with this many times too, to start well, but to not keep it up. Uh, often our motivations are revealed in trials. Our trials provide that real test. Do we have the endurance? Uh, do we have the patience and the persistence. When the going gets tough, the tough keep going, while the others find something else to do. Maybe it's a complaint or a diversion. Uh, I face those temptations. Sometimes I think, what is the point? I was so excited, so earnest to start this project, and now it's really, really hard. Uh, was I wrong in starting it? Should I be doing something else now? These labors don't seem to be worth it so far. But that is part of the problem. We have too often a short-sighted vision. We're not looking to the long term, not planning properly, not availing ourselves of God's grace day by day to abide and to stay in the path. So if we really, uh, I would say, understood the eternal ramifications of the project we're engaged in, which hopefully we start good projects, and if you start good projects, you need to finish good projects. So that'd be the first test. But if you're engaged in a project and you started it because it was good, you need to continue in it because it was good. And we need to avoid this, uh, I'll call it fickleness. Recognize that our sins, our sins of impatience, our sins of quitting, etc., are more serious than we admit. And of course, the serious sins 
there's serious grace, right? With grave sins, there's great grace. Jesus meets us in that for mercy. Not to just catch us and penalize us and grind us into the dirt, but to lift us up and to encourage us going forward. So, if you humbly recognize, I have not been doing well in that, don't despair. There's a great Savior to rescue you and to encourage you in that. And gratitude uh, for his sustaining grace is a great motivator. Well, further, <coughs> is your service exclusive uh, or mixed and polluted would be the alternate. And I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, do we serve God or do we serve God and? Uh, insert your, your version of and. God in money, God in self, God in career, God in vacation, God in political party, God in looking out for others. Uh, or, sorry, looking good in front of others, uh, God and the good things that come from serving Him, right? There's a lot of other things we can tag on there that are really enticing. And sometimes so subtle, we don't notice them at first. Uh, so it is hard. Uh, one theologian said our hearts are idol factories, that is, say, manufacturing things that divert our godly attentions. It's very, very easy to veer off into one ditch or another. Uh, we convince ourselves we're doing something for the right reason or with the right goal and increase pride or greed or lust. So friends, keep an eye out for this. Uh, contemplate the ditches that are in your life, uh, perhaps asking counsel. You know, friend, I'm, I'm on this project and I'm having trouble. Do you see some hazards? I've got some blind spots maybe. I can't see what it is. So whether it's your elders or uh, other Christian friends, youth, encourage you to talk with your parents. They're older and wiser. Say, you know, what are the things I should be looking out for? You know, think of uh, Don Rumsfeld, his unknown unknowns. Uh, that's very wise, actually. What are the things I need to be looking out for? I don't want to end up in the ditch. How can I straight stay on that straight path for the Lord? Because, of course, no other gods. That should ring true to us, make us tremble. No other gods. Well, one more, two more, I think. Second to last. Is your service horizontal while being grounded in the vertical? And by this, I want to emphasize horizontal service is very good. Uh, serving your spouse, serving your neighbor, you know, cleaning up this uh, sanctuary space after worship is a very good thing. Don't think that you can only serve God uh, by being in the Sunday worship service. You're only serving God while praying. Uh, you're only serving God while doing your uh, morning Bible study. Uh, horizontal service, which is to say serving people in this life, is a very good and essential thing. But as I referenced earlier, is it being done as unto the Lord? Having met with the Lord on his holy day, uh, continuing to meet with him daily, uh, ideally daily morning and evening, uh, that's not all. Right? We must be doers of the word, not just hearers. That daily practice of doing something with what God tells us is essential. And how is it that scripture tells us the world knows we're believers? If we say we love God, but we don't love our brothers, there's good, good reason to question that the first claim is not true. So yes, it's important to be serving others. That's evidence of our faith. doesn't earn us faith, doesn't obtain us salvation, etc. It's evidence of, it's the outworking, it's the practice of the presence of God. And then last, by way of these uh, Lord willing probing questions, is your service painful? <clears throat> if I'm thinking, what? Is he some you know, masochist, some you know, monk from the 
1400 saying to need to practice self-flagellation in order to grow in godliness? Absolutely not. So what do I mean by, is our service painful? I can tell you from my own experience that if your servants serve us, doesn't cost you something, it's more than likely you're not actually serving as unto the Lord. Uh, you're doing some version of serving yourself while looking like you're serving others. Uh, so there can be various costs, and this is not an intended to be an exhaustive list, but the cost may be time. Uh, it might be convenience or money or sleep. So just as you're thinking, what ways am I serving? Maybe you've worked it out so that, you know, uh, the act of service you do is you know, on the way to some other errand. And you're like, hey, that doesn't cost me anything. You know, a piece of cake. Yeah, I can stop in and do that. Well, are you really sacrificing anything? Not that I'm saying skip that or find a different routine to make it more inconvenient. But just think, are the only areas of service you do the ones that are convenient? Or if the only areas of service you do are the ones that don't cost you any money, are you being prideful about your money or selfish? Are you not trusting the Lord for financial provision, thinking, well, I can't do those expensive things because then I wouldn't have enough? Well, maybe you need to step out in faith. I'm not saying foolish and blow your budget, expecting him to do to fill that gap. But just some thoughtful questions for you, some maybes. Ask yourself, maybe, am I uh, not really serving in ways that hurt, uh, hurt me? Am I willing to give something up? Uh, a very humbling thing to do. It's very, I'll call it human. It's very normal to protect ourselves and to come up with good and logical and, and scriptural reasons why we need to protect ourselves. Sometimes we need to let down those protections and uh, let God do the protecting as we give sacrificially. So service can be fun. It can be joyful. It can bring a lot back to us by the way of God's blessings. But of course, we don't want to do it merely for those reasons. By avoiding pain, uh, by avoiding those costs, we might actually miss out on that divine joy and fun and encouragement. So keep that at the forefront of your mind so that you're serving. It's not about you. Uh, it's about others, and especially about the Lord. Well, friends, uh, a lot of work to do. This is <coughs> convicting for me as I prepare this to think, Lord, am I serving enough? Am I serving rightly? Uh, definitely, uh, it has this work I refer to has to be done in our hearts first, right? I want to emphasize that service is what flows out of us as we're filled with the Spirit. So definitively, that work is done at our salvation, in our regeneration. Uh, progressively, it should be happening day by day as we grow in grace to become more like Jesus. Outwardly, it's being done as evidence of that faith as we are Jesus' hands and feet to disciple the nations and teaching them everything that the Lord Jesus has commanded. And with that, just as a kind of final thought, <clears throat> the Great Commission informs us that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Know, that should be very challenging and very comforting, know that he is with you for the accomplishing of his purposes. Right? Our service is done not through any lack but through just complete abundance. He is Lord of all, and he promises so much to us. So to that end, let me leave you with a quote, and I wrote it here on your outline so you can take it with you, but from uh, Paul David Tripp, a popular author of, I'll call it Christian Counseling Books, uh, in his uh, somewhat recent book on leadership, he wrote, and it's a chapter called Service, or Servant. He wrote, The joy of a true servant is not power, the joy of a true servant is not control. The joy of a true servant is not acclaim. The joy of a true servant is not comfort or ease. And of course, 
The joy of a true servant is not position. What gives a servant joy in being a servant is service. Amen, friends. Let us find joy in service. May you bless today and in the coming days. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, Paul and uh, your working in his life to write this letter to us for the um, divine inspiration that led him to emphasize uh, this capacity for service, his vision to serve you and to serve the church as he served you. I pray that we would be drawn ever closer to the Lord Jesus, that we would grow in our service, whether it be of immediate family members, of extended family, of other brothers and sisters in this uh, local congregation, uh, throughout the denomination, throughout the world, as we support missionaries, as we fulfilling our vocations Monday through Friday, whatever it be, Lord, there are so many opportunities to serve and to, in doing ser- the serving of people to be serving you. So Lord, give us grace, give us humility, give us joy and peace, and may we know that we are pleasing you as we live out our faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.